We will be in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Now, we made this clear. The Lord made this clear in the first six verses of this chapter. The law is not sin. The law is perfect. The law is not the problem. But the law being perfect becomes a heavy, burdensome thing when it is kept, listen, when it is kept for the sake of keeping it. When the perfect law of God is kept simply for the sake of keeping it, it is heavy because we are imperfect people. An imperfect person trying to lug around the perfect law of God. And truly the real problem with law-based righteousness, and I still think there's way too much of it in this world, way too much of it in the church, people living out legalistic self-righteousness rather than standing in grace. And the problem is the heart ends up not really being in it. You might start out that way. You might come to Jesus, give Him your life, and start opening the Scriptures and studying and seeing all these things that you need to change and you need to do. And you might begin to get that sense of, alright, I can do this. This is exciting. I can actually be good. And I can work out these things. And so you start down that road of trying to work on it. And after a while, your heart is no longer going to be in it. It's just disappointing. And deflating and defeating. Because every law that you try to keep, you find there's one that you can't. You find that you're always coming up short. You find that you're always failing, and failure saps joy. And frustration wears down hope. So keeping the law for the sake of keeping the law, or trying to be righteous for the sake of being righteous, it misses the point. And it just causes us more problems. What was it about David that was so different? In Psalm 119, that long and absolutely wonderful psalm in the middle of the Psalms. Psalm 119, it's been referred to as David's pocketbook. Spurgeon said that he believed that David walked around with a, with a copy of Psalm 119 in his back pocket or perhaps in his robe. And would read from it and consider it and meditate on it. Well, in the midst of that, Psalm 119 verse 54 says, Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. As we just sang. Oh Lord, I remember your name in the night. And keep your law. And then he says, this has become mine. That I observe your precepts. What was it about David that that made him bold enough to say, I keep your law. I love your law. I live by your law. I observe your precepts. In fact, he goes so far as to say, this has become mine. Your law, Lord, is my law. How could David say that? Especially David, who we know didn't always keep his law. Psalm 51 comes before Psalm 119. We know what happened in Psalm 51. We know about the murder and the cover-up, the adultery, all of that. How can you say this, David? The truth is, David loved the lawgiver. He loved the law because he loved the law giver. He loved the Lord. 
And if I do what I do for love, it's a completely new ballgame. A completely different thing. If I do it for law, and this is what we talked about on Sunday, if I'm living for the law, I'm missing the whole thing. I'm in a bad marriage. Because the law is perfect, and I am not. And every time I walk in that, that door, there's Mr. Wright just showing me how flawed I am. I've got to get out of this. And so as we talked about, and so as Paul so beautifully describes, we die to the old man, the first husband. And then we, we live and are joined to another who is Jesus. But you've got to go back. Go back a half century before David. Because you start to wonder, well, if, if it's really about loving God, why did He give the law? I understand He gave the law so the sin would increase, the transgression would increase. But why give the law, the law at all? If we go further back to Deuteronomy, and you can turn there or just listen to this, Moses in the book of Deuteronomy is giving his farewell address. He's recounting the law again. Listen to where he begins. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he starts off this recounting of the law. Don't miss how he started. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. On your heart. This doesn't sound like a legal code to me. Love the Lord. Have His Word on your heart. Think about them, David would say. Meditate upon them day and night. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now the Jews took this literally and they came up with phylacteries and tepalim. And they used these things to to contain the law and actually bind it in little boxes on their foreheads. You can see Jews today. The ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jews in Jerusalem walking around with boxes on their heads. Trying to keep the law. But that misses the point. The whole idea of binding it to the, as a frontal on your forehead is that God is always on your mind. That you're thinking about Him. That you love Him. Here, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That is your spirit, your soul, and your body. Be all in, in loving God. He says in verse 10, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, houses full of all kinds of good things which you did not fill, and huge cisterns, hewn cisterns which you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. Get in the picture. He didn't do anything. He did this. He says, and you eat and you're satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget to keep the law. It doesn't say that. That you do not forget the Lord. The whole law is couched in loving God. The whole law was about loving Him. David loved the Lord and therefore he loved His law. Moses loved God and therefore loved the law. 
But if you love the law, if you seek the law, if you live by the law and you forget the love of God, then the law becomes a heavy, weighty thing. Jesus said, and I quote again from Sunday, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me. Focus on the law and you'll fail. Every time. Focus on Jesus and you got a shot at righteousness because He does it. More than that, you will be righteous. You are made righteous and God declares you righteous if your heart is focused on Jesus Christ who has become for us righteousness and sanctification and peace. Focusing on Him. That's sanctification. Sanctification is not listing all the rules and starting to check them off like Benjamin Franklin did. And he did that historically. Wrote down every possible sin or struggle or failure that he might have and began to check them off as he conquered them. Hey, that has nothing to do with loving Jesus. And you will fail if you take that approach. Now by the time Jesus came into the world, Israel's efforts to live by the law showed a 1,500-year failure. They tried hard to live by the law. First, first they came into the land, and they took the law with them, and when nobody was looking, or they thought, Israel became the adulterous wife. Ran off to other gods. Then, brought back into the land after captivity, Israel became not the adulterous wife, but the weary wife. Striving to keep the law. Opening up synagogues across the land. Studying the Word. Adhering to the Word. Trying to be a people of the Word. And it was tiring for them. It's interesting, just this last week, uh, on a recent trip, this is in Biblical Archaeological Review, on a recent trip to the archaeological site of Tel Rehov in Israel's Beshan Valley, seven-year-old Ori Greenhut Notice something in the dirt with the image of a person. Little Israeli boy. He picked it up and he brought it home. And the article tells us that it was an image that was recognized as, for one thing, very ancient. His mother saw it and said, this is an ancient thing. And she called the Israel Antiquities Authority, the IAA. The IAA awarded Ori with a certificate of appreciation for good citizenship for giving up this artifact to state authorities, many of whom, looking at it, believe that the little idol is of the fertility goddess Astarte. It's about that big. You can see a picture of it. A little carved image of the goddess Astarte. Dr. Amichai Mazar, the chief archaeologist over the site, had this to say. He said, it is typical of the Canaanite culture of the 15th to 13th centuries BCE. They always add the E. And it's highly likely that the biblical term, teraphim, refers to figurines of this kind. We've studied that. We've talked about that. Back in our study through the Hebrew Scriptures, the teraphim were household gods that people kept. And there were thousands of them that have been archaeologically dug up and discovered. People would keep these in their homes. And they weren't big, you know, idols, big shrines in their homes. They were little handheld gods about the size of a rabbit's foot with the same intention. Little household gods, teraphim. 
Again, thousands upon thousands upon thousands have been dug up. You know what's interesting? There is zero evidence of any teraphim in the households of Judah after their return from Babylon. That is, archaeologists have found thousands of these teraphim, but they all date back to the thousands B.C., 1500, 1300 B.C., or prior to 600 B.C. After that time, none have been discovered that date to that point. Why? Because the adulterous wife, Israel, went into captivity in the capital of idolatry, got sick of it. It's kind of the Shikshadel thing that God used. You know, smoke them if you got them. You want idol worship? I'll give you idol worship. And he gave it to them. And when they came back to the land, they got it. They learned. Israel, when Jesus came on the scene, did not have a problem with idolatry as such. God had worked it out of them. But what we do see is for Israel after the Babylonian captivity, so after about 530 B.C. and forward until the time of Christ, what we see is two mentalities. We see one mentality of a strict teaching and adherence to the law. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, lawyers. We see synagogues across the land adhere to the law. That was one mentality that was prevalent in Israel in Jesus' day. The second one was a deep yearning for Messiah. People longing for Messiah to finally come and set them free. Something the law couldn't do. Something that that strict adherence to the law could only really produce, well, sin. And Paul asked the question, is the law sin? The law, he says literally, is it sin? And then he makes that same statement. He'll make it ten times in the book of Romans. May it never be. Is the law sin? Away with that thought, he says. Now verse 7 again immediately follows Paul's comparison of freedom from the law to a second marriage. The first husband being the old man. The wife is the new believer who died to the law. And the another to whom she is joined is none other than the bridegroom, Christ Jesus. By the way, before we go any further, what do you mean further? We haven't even gotten into the study yet, Rick. I know, we'll get there. You need to understand that while in in the law, while the husband could divorce the wife, there was no provision for the wife to divorce the husband. He could literally leave her over burnt toast. She could not leave him. That was the way it was written. That was the way it was established. The only way out for the woman was the death of the husband. If he passed, if he died, then she was free to be joined to or to marry another. Now to those who find that chauvinistic, my reaction, my response is no, it's perfect. It's perfect. Because, you see, the man, Jesus, died to set all people free, men and women. You know that God is not as concerned with your temporary comfort as He is with your eternal condition, right? 
You know that what he's doing here is not about making us comfortable in this world or happy with our politics and our philosophies and our thinking. He does not kowtow to the whims of man and woman. He doesn't say, oh, you're offended? Well, let me retract. What God does and what He says is always for the purpose of A, glorifying His name, and B, bringing salvation to all mankind, which glorifies His name. So when you see some of the things in the law, and you say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Fair's not the issue. Now, God is fair and perfectly just and absolutely righteous, but He is doing things to draw out faith and salvation. So with the woman not being able to divorce the husband in the same way God is drawing an eternal picture a huge historical picture for us that when Jesus comes along he dies because the woman couldn't die we the wife could not die to the law only the perfect man Jesus could do that and so he comes along and dies to the law in our place to free us up so that we might be joined to him in his resurrection it's it's astounding And the Lord had this all planned out from the very beginning. And now He says, and I remind you all, there is neither male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Well, then how come you don't have any female elders, Rick? All are one in Christ Jesus. Because God said, I want the shepherds to be men. I didn't make that up. There are a lot of you women that would probably do a much better job than the handful of us guys who are shepherds. And we all freely admit that. But God has roles established, again, because He's doing something. He knows what's best for us. Oh, so you're saying it's best for me that you have a man over me? That's not, I'm not saying that. You want to know honestly what I think? I think it's best for the men that they have to be shepherds. I never said it was best for the women. But it's certainly best for the men because, as I've said many times before, if they weren't shepherds, they wouldn't do it. If we weren't given the role, we would probably just kind of slip back and chill. We do that very well. I don't even know where I am right now. I'm just kind of talking tonight. (laughs) You know the law in, in Greece, Grecian law? The highest culture in history, some still think, Grecian law taught that every man should have three women. So you want to talk about chauvinism. While the Lord was saying one woman to one man for one marriage for one life, the Greeks were saying, no, no, every man should have one woman to bear him children, one woman for a lover, and then one woman he can take out on a date. Really? You know, woman he could talk to and take to dinner and show around town. You know, wow. And people say, oh, if we could only be more like the Greeks. Yeah. Yeah. So again, in the first six six verses of this chapter, Paul describes the believer as having died to the law. Now we come into the next division, and this is so remarkable. And I've been looking forward to this because up to this point, as I said Sunday, there's a lot of theology, a lot of teaching, a lot of doctrine. And it's marvelous... But you might start to go, well, but I want to feel this a little more. And so Paul launches into that picture of marriage and reminds us that it is a love relationship that we are in and not a legal contract. Right? But he continues now to discuss the believer who still feels not 
the ones who have died to the law, but those who feel defeated by the law. Let me ask you a question. As a Christian, have you ever felt defeated in your faith? Have you ever felt, show of hands, like, man, I'm just not very good. And I'm waiting to see who doesn't raise their hand. <laughs> the defeat of Christianity. I mean, let's, let's get it out in the open. Let's say it out loud. I'm supposed to be among the holy ones. I'm supposed to be sanctified. Then why do I keep sinning? Why does it continue to happen? And Paul addresses that with sanctification and he keeps calling us to, to change our minds, to set our thoughts on Christ and Him crucified, the love of God, and to stop worrying so much about law and start loving God more. And sanctification begins to truly take place. But he goes further than this now. He gets very personal. In fact, Paul addresses his own sense of defeat. Verse 7, what shall we say then is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. This is an amazing admission. And I believe it is a personal admission on the part of Paul. I never would have known if not for the law, he says. If I didn't start studying the Word of God, I might have remained blissfully ignorant to my sin. What was it that illuminated Paul's heart? What was it that spun him around? What was it the light of Jesus on the road to Damascus? Was that the moment when Paul had his aha and his great understanding? I don't think so. I actually think you can trace it to much earlier than that in Paul's life. Because Jesus does. In Acts 26 verse 13, Paul describing that Damascus Road experience says, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Shaul, Shaul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says this, and it's the only time Paul shared this truth, this little factoid in his conversion experience. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Remember, Jesus says that to Paul. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? It means Paul had already been struggling. A goad is a cattle prod. And he is already feeling the sticks of the law. It was already difficult for him. Long before the Lord appeared to Saul, he had been kicking against the law. It had been poking him like a pointy prod. For the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12 tells us, is active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Which is why sometimes we sit in Bible study or we sit under teaching and we go, Oh man, that makes me uncomfortable. Poke. I want one of those foam fingers. Just so every now and then while I'm teaching, if I see someone looks uncomfortable, I can just walk over and go, Poke. Poke. Because that's what the Word does. 
That's what the law does. It illuminates. It opens our eyes. And suddenly we realize things that maybe we didn't know. You know what's marvelous about that is that sanctification is a process. What do you mean? In other words, I don't have to have it all together when I first start walking with Jesus. He's going to prod me and poke me and and, and He's going to show me. He's going to illuminate before me the path that I'm walking. And I'm going to realize... You know, someone comes in here with all all manner of sin hanging out, but they fall before Jesus and say, I love the Lord, I want to be a Christian, I want to follow the Lord. The first thing I do is not give them a list of things that they have to change. And we start teaching about Jesus. And say, come and be in Bible study and hear the Word. Because the Word is living and active and it's going to do the job. So Paul was getting poked and, and prodded. And I think verse 7 through the rest of the chapter is an explanation by the way of confession. That the Apostle is literally empathetic to every single one of us who have ever struggled with Scripture, who have ever struggled with living the Christian life. And he comes right out and confesses what his issue was. I would never known, have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. What was Paul's sin issue? I suggest it was coveting. That the apostle himself, before he was an apostle, struggled heavily with this. The word covet in the Greek is epithumia. And epithumia means lust or craving or desire. It's not just about coveting your neighbor's house or your neighbor's donkey or your neighbor's wife. Coveting is, well, Denny put it this way. He said, it is the desire... For that which is forbidden, which is the first conscious form of sin. The desire for that which is forbidden is the first conscious form of sin. It's where sin starts to work. James put it this way, James 1.14, Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. You see something, you want it. And then when lust is conceived... It gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And so here, imagine this. This young man, Saul, he's studying along. He's been trained up in good schools. And the more he studies the Word, suddenly it hits him. He realizes it. Poke. For all his pharisaical feats, Paul's the sinner. So what do you do? Well, I work harder, right? I'm going to overcome that. Poke. And suddenly all that attempt to overcome isn't working. Maybe you do overcome a certain sin and then poke. Oh, I'm sinful here too. i got to deal with that now. And the moment you've got this one together, the one that you fixed over here is coming unraveled again. Poke. Imagine Paul in that place, realizing with his sense of intensity (laughs) and righteousness. I mean, man, he described himself, well, he put it this way, Philippians 3, 4. When anyone, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, Paul was Hebrew national, man. Hot dog. And as to the law, a Pharisee. 
as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Verse 8. But sin, taking every opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. What did he covet? What did Paul crave? What did he lust after or desire? I suggest to you it was position. Prestige. To be among the uppermost, upper crust of Israel. A Pharisee on the Sanhedrin. And it's possible that Paul or Saul at the time was. We don't know for sure. But man, we know he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Ambition. Paul realizes his lust for power is in direct violation to the law of God. And it's starting to goad him. Isaiah 48 verse 11 tells us very clearly, my, For my own sake, for my own sake I will act, declares the Lord. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. So stop trying. Ultimately, Paul would say, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Philippians 3.7 He finally got it. All that striving was worth nothing. But Christ was worth everything. Verse 9 He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. He says, I was once alive apart from the law. Adam and Eve were apart from the law once. They were alive apart from the law. Well, not apart from the law completely. They had one law, just one. Don't eat from that tree. That was the only law in the entire garden. If you wanted a law book for the Garden of Eden, you wouldn't have a book. You wouldn't even have a page. It'd be one single little line. And the line was, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Genesis two sixteen and 17. Now when they were apart from the law, they were alive. But then the law came and guess what? They started dying. Because in light of the perfect law, their sin was revealed. They sinned against God, they rebelled, they were booted from the garden, and death began that day on planet Earth. But you might ask, well, I get that for Adam and Eve, but when was Paul alive apart from the law? When is anybody alive apart from the law? When they're kids. When they don't know any better, right? When we're children. Now, that's not to say children don't sin. Your parents understand that. But my friends, this this whole idea of being alive apart from the law means there is a time when you're apart from the law and it's when you don't know it. But you start to study it and the more you know it, the heavier it gets. And it's the same thing with growing up. Man, I, do you ever long just to be a kid again? Wouldn't it be great? Man, you pick your nose and draw on the wall and, who, you know, oh, that's wrong? Because if I had known that that was wrong here, I wouldn't have done that, but I didn't know. 
Think about it. I mean, that excuse started to wear off after a while. I didn't know. You know, by the time you're 21, you pretty much can't use that one anymore. I wasn't supposed to draw on the wall, man. When we were kids. And perhaps there's a hint here of the childlikeness to which we are called. And that is to be a people who live apart from the law. Jesus said, Matthew 18.3, Truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. All children live apart from the law. They survive on grace. Trust me. My children survive on my grace. Because if not for grace, the law would come in and they would die. I mean, parents, think about what you put up with because they don't know any better. I'll never forget the time David, we came out of the room and he was there in the front room and he had, I don't even remember, what was that? It was, all I remember it was like white cream. And it was all over his face and hair and down his shoulders and all over the mantle. He just had a grand time. It was like some facial cream or something that Cheryl had. And he opened it up as a kid. <laughs> and we came out and, and what, 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 what were we going to do with that? Oh, that's it. Oh, that's it. Honey, get the gun. <laughs> No grace. He was alive apart from the law. He didn't know. And when we learn, wow, that's when we start to live under the law. And the truth of the law and God's righteousness and all of these things, it becomes heavy. And there are a lot of Christians who wilt under the weight of the law. Matthew 10.17 tells us the story. A man ran up to Jesus and he knelt before him and he said, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Hear the question. What shall I do? What do I need to keep? I've got the list and I think I've checked off just about everything. That was his attitude. Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So he was talking to God. And Jesus said, You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Check, 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 check. I'm good to go. Listen, I I love the way Mark writes this. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. I love that insight. And he said, One thing you lack... Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And you know what everybody does with that passage? And I believe I may have done it myself. You jump on the one thing that he wasn't keeping, his covetousness. Sell everything you've got. That's what you need. That's the prescription. I think we just missed it. I think the prescription of Jesus was, come, follow me. Stop checking off the list. Stop trying to live by the law. Okay, you've shown that you can do all these things. Trust me, I can find one that you can't do. And here's an example. But what you need to do is come follow me. It's a sad story because at these words, the man went away sad, grieving because he was one who owned much 
property and it was more important to him than Jesus was. Jesus was calling him to a relationship. So Paul, when he grew up, when he began to study the Scriptures, he says, sin became alive and I died. In other words, it just killed me. It killed me. Think about it. The ambitious Pharisee starting to realize that he was not as good as everybody thought he was. I know none of you have ever felt that. That at church, they see me and they think I'm one way, but at home I am completely different and if I let slip who I really am, we're going to all have trouble. What pressure to live under. So what did he do? He tried harder. And harder... And he kicked against the goads. And that's why this entire word, and I'm talking Genesis to Revelation, must be studied and received in a love relationship. That's the point. Because without that, this is too heavy to lift. The letter kills. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6 tells us, the Spirit gives life. Paul says in verse 11, For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Twice now he's made the same statement, taking opportunity through the commandment. He said it in verse 8. He's now said it again in verse 11. I want you to get this. Taking opportunity through the commandment. Paul's the only one to use this word opportunity. And it's a very interesting word in the Greek. It's a forme, and a forme literally means a starting place. Or we might translate it a base of operations. What does that mean? Sin set up a base of operations in the law. Sin uses the law, the law that's perfect. Remember, the law is not the problem. The law of God is wonderful, it's pure, pure, it's perfect. It's right on. But sin uses the law as a launching pad, as as a place, a base of operations, a staging ground, if you will, for attack and annihilation. It's a stunning picture. Sin taking advantage of the perfect law to be in the perfect position to kill. And you know what happened? Many of us bought it. Many of us started walking down that Walk of death. Got to keep the law. Got to keep the law. Got to stick with it. Oh, got to hang in there. Paul goes so far in describing this, he personifies sin. Now, sin is not a person. Satan is a person. Right? And his devils are people. Sin's not a person, but it's what people do. And it has a a, a certain power, an inherent power in us, and it's almost like a person. But Paul personifies it to show it as a very powerful force in our lives. He says in 1 Corinthians 15.56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Because the law is what sin uses to launch its attacks at our imperfection. Verse 12, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Why? Because God is holy and righteous and good. The law is that because God is that. It's His Word. And He, the psalmist tells us, has magnified His Word above all His name. So if He's holy and perfect good, so is the law. Verse 13, Therefore, 
Did that which is good become a cause of death for me? (laughs) May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Sin would become utterly sinful. Paul's saying sin is waked up and energized where there's a law to violate. Remember what I said on Sunday? Whatever you do, don't think of a hot, warm, steaming chocolate donut. Don't think of it. And you know everybody except people who hate chocolate donuts, and you're weird if you do. Everybody thought of a steaming hot chocolate donut in that moment. Sin is awakened. It's energized where there's a law to violate. When we're told no, we think why? When we're told don't, we think perhaps. And we want to go around. And sin, please understand, sin always makes good things bad. Always. Sin always makes beautiful things ugly. Sin always causes living things to die. And every generation is filled with people who think, well, not when I sin. See, I can sin. And it's beautiful. I can can skirt the law. I can find the loopholes. Really, you think after 6,000 years, you're the one who's going to figure out a way around the perfect law? We are so arrogant. Sin comes along and reduces good things like good food, turns it into gluttony. I mean, what do we all do? I know what I do. I used to love moon pies. You know, good moon pie with the, the chocolate and then the, the kind of flaky crust and that marshmallow in there. Oh. And so you'd eat a moon pie. I would have a moon pie. I love moon pies. Glass of milk and a moon pie. It was a great afternoon. But the moment the moon pie was done, you really needed to have another. Right? The moon pie in and of itself was good. It was the seventh moon pie that started to get bad. It was when the entire box was gone that your mom just bought the day before, and you've now worked your way through it in about seven minutes. Good food becomes gluttony. Sin soils the marriage bed. What God created is a beautiful thing to be shared between a man and a woman. Think of how we have messed it up. Sin destroys healthy relationships. Sin turns God's blessings into curses. Sin is always bad. Well, we know, Rick. i I, got to say it. Through the very good commandment, the, the perfect law of God, sin became utterly, literally all-surpassingly sinful. You know what the word is there for uh, utterly sinful? Through the commandment, sin became or would become utterly sinful. The word is hyperbole. In the Greek, it's our word hyperbole. Hyperbole means a ridiculous exaggeration. And Paul's saying that through the law, sin came along and just exploded to a ridiculous level. 
A.G. Robertson said, The excesses of sin reveal its real nature. Only then do some people get their eyes open. You have one glass of wine. Cheryl's going to laugh about this because she says, You bring up drinking like every other teaching. People are going to think you have a real problem with it. I don't. But it's just an easy target. I told her that. It's just one of those things, you know, it's so easy to bring up. You have that first glass of wine and it's sparkling and it's interesting and it's flavorful and, and there's something to it. Hey, well, I, I kind of like this. And besides, I feel cultured while I have the glass of wine. And then you have more and you have more. And you know the commercial, no alcoholic starts out wanting to be an alcoholic. But that's what sin does. It starts with a little thing and it becomes excessive. And it's not until it becomes excessive that then some people realize, I am under the control of sin. I am under the utterly sinful nature of sin itself. And sin is such a ravenous wolf, so hungry... That it took the beautiful, flawless, ideal Son of God and hung Him in the shame of humanity in bloody, naked, appalling brutality on the cross. That's sin. And the cross, if nothing else for us, should be the ultimate picture of the result of sin. That's where it goes. And how pretty it is when it first gets rolling but it always ends up there. It's voracious. Well, verse 14. So that's all kind of Paul's setup for what he's about to say. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, or some of your translations might rightly say carnal, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. Anybody ever feel like that? We so relate to this section of Scripture. Every single person who reads it can go, Oh yeah, 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 I get it. And my friends, it is the defeatism of lawful living. I am defeated when I'm trying to be the self-righteous guy instead of being in the love relationship. And I will repeat it to you again. Christianity is not a legal binding contract. It is a blessed love relationship. But we get off track so easily. And in Paul's writings, this is what he's doing. He's drawing us in to see something. And you got to get this tonight. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, uses three words to describe three types of people or what you might say three states or stages of humanity. And we'll really get into this when we study 1 Corinthians, which will be the next book on the docket. But the three words are as follows. And you might want to jot these down or just be aware of these because they they describe literally three stages of humanity. The stage number one is the natural man. The natural man. This is the unsaved person. This is just the person who is living in the soul. In fact, the word for the natural man is sukikos. Sukikos. 
1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The best the unsaved person can do, the best the natural man, the natural woman can do, is live by reason or emotion. I can think things out. I can work it out. And that is, that is the soul man. The natural man. And he cannot appraise life by the Spirit. The natural man always lacks something in terms of wisdom. There's always something he just can't get. He can't understand. The natural man. Sutikos. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul said, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as infants in Christ. And those are the next two stages. Stage 1 is the natural man. Stage 2 I'll come back to. Stage 3 is the spiritual Christian. The spiritual Christian. That is, saved and living in the fullness of the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit. Listening to the Spirit. Empowered by the Spirit. Paul says, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men. Because spiritual men would have full understanding of what Paul wanted to say. But they were not acting spiritual. Pneumatikos is the word for spiritual men. I speak to you as to pneumatikos. And Paul is going to describe that beautifully when we get into the next chapter, Romans chapter 8. The spiritual man. What does the spiritual man, the spiritual woman look like? Well, that's the third, uh, the, the third state. The second one, which is vital to understand because it's where many Christians spend most of their lives. And it is the carnal Christian. The carnal Christian. Saved, but still living out of the soul. Natural man, unsaved. The carnal Christian. Saved, they come to Jesus, but they're still struggling, still striving, and still very soulish in their mentality. And then finally, the spiritual person. Which is where the Lord is calling all of us. The carnal Christian. Sarkinos. Sarkinos, the carnal Christian, the word that Paul chose for that, that's often translated flesh, is the same word where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus became sarks. He became flesh and blood. It's, it's the most debased, low uh, physical picture of humanity. It's our flesh, and Jesus became that. But then Paul extends it to say the sarkinos are those who are carnal in the way they live their lives. But they are Christians, and that's the key here. The unsaved, the natural man, is not a Christian, not a believer. The carnal Christian does believe. And then there's the spiritual man or the spiritual believer. Paul calls the Corinthians infants in Christ. He's talking to carnal Christians. And again, what's so significant about this, and the reason I I have to pause and give this to you before you hear what Paul's about to say. The reason this is so significant is that the carnal Christian is the place where, again, the majority, I fear, of Christians lives there. As carnal Christians. And we wonder, 
why we struggle with sin. It's because we're still carnal. It's because we're living out of the soul instead of out of the Spirit. Well, how do we learn to live out of the Spirit? We're going to. That's where we're going in Romans. Buckle up. The carnal Christian. Paul says to the church at Corinth, these Christians, believers, he says, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. For you are not able yet to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able, for you are still carnal. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not carnal? And are you not walking like mere men? Christians who strive. Christians who fight. Christians who are jealous. Christians who are mean to one another. Christians who act this way and the world looks at Christianity and goes, eh, boy, they're hardly different than the natural man and the world would be right if we are living carnally. If we're still living in flesh. My friends, that's the position that Paul is describing right here in Romans 7. When he says, the thing that I want to do, I don't do. And the thing that I I don't do is the thing I want to do. I'm so confused by this. Carnal Christianity. Paul is relating his own sense of being there. This is amazing to me. Because it didn't all happen on the road to Damascus. It didn't all happen within the three days that Paul waited in Damascus. And then he got baptized. And he got filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul would have to learn just like everybody else. That when you come to Christ and you get saved, now you gotta, you got to put away the carnal man. You've got to learn to live spiritually. Which is not by the weight of the law. Think about it. If you were Paul, how long would it take to unhook from all that garbage? Of all that weight of self-righteousness that he had spent his life living? Many young Christians and some older Christians struggle with carnality, which is very simply, and ask yourself if this is me. Not me, but you. You ask yourself. I'll ask myself. (laughs) It's trying to do in my own strength what can only be accomplished in the Spirit. Is that you? Sometimes it's me. I, I confess it. Sometimes it is me. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to work it out. And then I think... Maybe I should pray about this. And the moment, by the way, that I turn to prayer, now I'm starting to walk in the Spirit. But we spend an awful lot of time as Christians trying to figure it out. And that is the carnal Christian. Saved, but carnal. Look at verse 16. Paul says, But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. That's a believer, gang. A believer says the law is a good thing. The unsaved wouldn't say that. The unsaved would say it's a lot of garbage. Why do you read your Bibles? It's a waste of time. It's the believer who says this. So now, verse 17, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh, in my carnality. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Wasn't it Jesus who said that very same thing to Peter on the, on the very night of his betrayal in the garden? Mark 14, 38, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Peter believed in Jesus. He didn't fully understand yet, quite yet, who Jesus really was, but but yet he had proclaimed him to be the Christ, right? Six months earlier. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter said. And now on the night of betrayal when Jesus needed him most, Peter was snoozing. (coughs) Snoozing. Falling asleep. Under the tree. Weary. And Jesus says, the Spirit's willing. But it is your flesh that's winning right now, Pete. Your flesh is weak. I really believe we need to accept this stark, dark truth. That nothing good dwells in my flesh. Nothing good dwells in my flesh. Nothing. Paul is absolutely clear about this. And you might say, well, great. That's discouraging. I mean, talk about defeatism. Nothing good dwells in my flesh, so I'm just stinky bad. Is that it? That's a defeatist attitude. Exactly. It's a defeatist attitude. So why would you want to start or continue to do things in the flesh if nothing good dwells there? Why would you want to work it out in the flesh, in carnality? Live by the law and you will be defeated. Live by the law, you're going to be deflated. You're going to be discouraged because it all depends on you. And that is the difference between the saved believer and the unsaved natural man. At least at least the saved believer is uncomfortable with sin. At least the person, Paul describing his own history, us recognizing and relating to it, at least when I look at this I go, yeah, that is... These are the words of a believer. I want to do good. The unbeliever doesn't want to do good. The unbeliever doesn't care. He only does good if it feels good. But the believer says, I I really do want to live by the Word of God. I, I want to do these things. That's a believer. But there is still more a more excellent way. Hang on, we're almost there. Verse 19. For the good that I want... I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. He's talking about the sin nature, our propensity to rush after wrong, to be in rebellion. That's where the carnal man is. He goes on, he says, verse 21, I find then... The principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. So, we're going to start coming up for air here. Understand, this is good news. You are the one who wants to do good, right? Anyone not want to do good here tonight? Because if you're not even there, then we need to have a completely different study. But I'm assuming we all want to do good. We want to serve Jesus, right? But there's this principle, evil is present in me. Verse 22, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I love His law. I like singing the song about loving His law. I just can't keep it. Verse 23, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul said, you know, it really isn't me. And by the way, it's not a disease either. It's sin. 
that is present in me. So cut yourself a little slack tonight. The reason why we keep failing and keep doing these things wrong is because sin is still present. That sin nature still rises up from time to time. But I know I want to do good. And yet there's this dark, ugly, deceiving, luring sin that's present. And here's how it works. It takes control of the battlefield of the mind. Sin is a fleshly thing that takes hold of the mind and fights. And then begins to take over the members, Paul says, of my body. What does he mean by that? Eyes looking at things that they shouldn't, but I can't help it. You know, I I once had a friend, perhaps you've heard this, this has gone around in the church. It's really not lust as long as you don't look for more than 30 seconds. So at 31, you're sinning, right? 32 and a half. That just doesn't work. I tried it as a young man, and at about seven minutes, I realized, oh, wow. (laughs) It's ears hearing language and doctrines and ideas that my ears shouldn't ought to be hearing. Noses sniffing things, hands touching things, feet going places that you know it would be better not to go. But see, sin has started this fight, this war, in the battlefield of my mind, my soul. It fights in there and causes my flesh then to respond and to go places and do things and see things and hear things and smell things that I shouldn't be doing. And it's as if Paul's saying, my flesh is at war with my mind, and it is. Civil war. It's a civil war within, and it's all going on in the carnal man, in the carnal woman, in the soul. The place of reason and intellect where we think that's where the battle takes place. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things that you please. And I've described it this way before. You've got the spirit, you've got the soul, and you've got the battlefield of the mind. This is where the war takes place. And whichever one you're paying attention to, whichever one you're listening to, whichever mindset you're focused on, either the mindset of the spirit or the mindset of the flesh, is going to win in the battleground of the soul. Spirit or flesh, the fight goes on. And the carnal Christian is the person who is constantly at war with himself or herself. And Paul empathizes with this big time. In verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am! It's a guttural cry. It's literally, Wretched man I! In the Greek. Wretched man I! And that word wretchedness is is an interesting word. It means... Get this, through the exhaustion of hard labor. My wretchedness is through the exhaustion of hard labor. My friends, carnal Christianity is the hardest way to live in the world. Much easier to live as a natural man, natural woman, not worrying about it. A whole lot easier just to throw it all away. 
But it is very hard to live as a carnal Christian because you spend your life in Romans chapter 7. I want to do this, I can't do that. Every time I don't, I find myself doing what I don't want to do and I'm just back and forth and the battle goes on and on and on. Carnal Christianity. And it's hard. And it's exhausting. No wonder he says, wretched man I. I'm just sick of it. Exhausted by it. Wiped out. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And I love it. Paul does not say how. He doesn't say, how can I get free from the body of death? He doesn't jump back to pointing to procedures or or rules or law. See, it's the natural man who asks the how question. The natural man says, how can I escape death? Well, I can work out more. I can eat healthy, put away the moon pies. How can I escape death? Maybe there's a way that we can lengthen life and so we spend our days in scientific experiments trying to figure out how to extend life another year or another two or another five. Is there a water of life somewhere perhaps that we could find a stream where if we could drink that water, oh, then we could just live forever. And so the natural man, that's what he thinks. How can I... Escape death. The carnal Christian is the one who's asking, what can I do to get free of this body of death? The carnal Christian knows they're dying and knows that they're sinful. But the carnal Christian's asking the wrong question. What can I do? The Bible does not answer that question. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these, Jesus says, that testify about me. John 5.39 It's one of the greatest verses, by the way, in all the Bible. Because it finally focuses us in on what the Scriptures are all about. The Bible doesn't tell us how. The Bible doesn't tell us what. The Bible tells us who. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Man, you hit that verse and after all that Paul has just said, it's like a rushing wind blows through the temple. Like, it's going to be okay. Because through all this striving, I'm getting nowhere. But Jesus comes, oh, He sets me free. Praise God. Hallelujah. I am free of this. Free from the sin. Free from the law. Who will set me free? Jesus will. The natural man needs Jesus. The carnal Christian needs Jesus. And the spiritual man or woman, we love Jesus. Because, and I know you've heard it so many times, He's the one who said, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Who will set me free? Now, this is interesting to me because it's not the last of the verse. I I would think that's a perfect place to stop. Stop there, Paul. Don't say anything else. Just stop. 
But it's almost like this, this is a little parenthetical statement. You could almost do that in your Bibles, draw parentheses around that. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's like Paul's blurting out something he's going to get to in the next chapter. He's so excited, he just can't help himself. Okay, I, I just got to tell you this much, he's saying. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he's going to get into what I consider to be the most wonderful passage in all of the New Testament letters. Romans chapter 8. We've got to wait for it. But it's marvelous. Because Romans 8 teaches us how to leave the carnal Christian for the spiritual Christian. So we're going to get the answer to that. And it'd be a great place to end in chapter 7, but he doesn't. He goes on. He says one more thing. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand with my flesh, the law of sin. He has to end that way because this whole chapter, this whole division is Paul answering the question, is the law sin? That was the question back in verse 7. And so here at the end he says, no, that's not the case. The law is good. The law is perfect. But here's the deal. Whether I am serving the perfect law of God with my mind, or I'm serving the ugly law of sin with my flesh, either way, I lose. Either way, I fail. Serve sin and die. Try to serve the law, fail. Either way, being the natural man or being the carnal Christian, either way, it is a losing proposition. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the carnal Christian will not be saved. I'm talking about the battle that we fight through this life. There are going to be an awful lot of people who lived carnal Christianity their entire lives and are saved, and when they come into the freedom of Christ in heaven, they're going to wonder, why did I spend 30 years frowning in church? Why did I make it so hard? This is easy. This is wonderful. This is grace. But it doesn't work here, gang. The law is perfect. I am not. And that is why this parenthetical thanks sneaks in. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now let me give you one last thing here as we finish. Tomorrow I'm leaving for California. And we gone a week. My brother and I are going down. Don't tell him to celebrate my dad's 80th birthday and he doesn't know we're coming. And I just realized, I hope he doesn't listen to this teaching tonight. <laughs> we're going down. Ron's going to pick me up at 6 in the morning. We're going to head down and fly down to college. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm going to hang out with my brother and my family, my, my original family prior to now my family, you know. But here, here's the thing. I love doing it. I love going down there. Ron and I do this about every other year or so. We did it last year, but again, it's Dad's 80th. I'm looking forward to it. Except Cheryl won't be with me. And honestly, that makes it not quite what it would be. I'll be home a week, and then we leave for Israel. And this is the seventh time that I've been privileged to be in the land. Six of those times, Cheryl was with me. 
I bet you can guess the one time out of this entire group of times, the one time that just wasn't quite what all the other times were. And it was the one when Cheryl wasn't there. Now, I'm not trying to elevate my love relationship with my wife. It's just that when she's not there, it's it's not what it could be. The love relationship makes all the difference in the world. I would rather be with Cheryl in, in a... We used to kid and say, we'd rather be together in a Turkish prison than apart anywhere else in the world, you know. I'm not sure that's absolutely true, but let's just go with that. The love relationship is what makes it best. And that's why Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, I'm free from sin. That's great. I'm free from the law. That's fantastic. I'm sanctified and I'm being sanctified, but none of it is worth a thing without Jesus. If He's not there, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be the perfect Christian without Jesus. Because He makes all the difference in the world. He is what it's all about. And Lord Jesus, thank You for making that so clear to us. And I pray, Father, tonight that You will lift from us all striving. That You will begin to free us, anyone who's stuck or striving or dealing with that carnal Christianity. And Father, I think sometimes even the most spiritual among us will slide back into carnality. Father, lift us out of that to be spiritual people who see the unseen and who focus on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who who passionately walk in love relationship with You. Not trying to keep the commandments, just, just being with You. Because as Your servant Paul makes clear, when we are with You, all the rest is taken care of. Jesus, You said as much. If You love Me, You will keep my commandments. Lord Jesus, we love You. We declare that love for You tonight. And we desire to walk in love with You from here on out. In Jesus' name, Amen.